or taking a chance, like walking a high wire without a net to deliver on the bargain we've made. You've done your part. You've been patient with us and very generous, and we owe you this fun drive free summer. We couldn't have done it without you. So enjoy the summer, and we'll be back in the fall with a tremendous fun drive of great new thank you gifts and information you can only get at 94.1 FM. For you listeners who appreciate our efforts to reduce the fun drive days and are able to support us right now, you can donate now at kpfa.org. Thanks. This sounds like the beginning of some kind of passionate love story in film. Uh, Kevin Vance was so uh, excited about coming up with music that maybe would expand the repertoire of the beginning of our show. This is Raina Cowan, and this is Frame to Frame, the next half hour where we have a chance to look and explore films. Um, I'm going to be talking about a, a series of films today, and uh, I'm joined by someone to talk about these films, one in which he was the director and others which uh, I'm sure he'll have opinions. Uh, William Farley is a Bay Area-based filmmaker. He's been making films in the Bay Area since 1970, uh, and they've screened nationally and internationally. Uh, he says sort of tongue-in-cheek that it's been a vocation, not an occupation, which I think is uh, probably true for so many filmmakers and has made uh, about 25 films, starting with experimental films, moving to fiction, and now into documentary. So um, welcome to KPFA. Thank you. Thank you. So the first film that we're going to talk about today is actually a film that you directed. It's entitled Plastic Man, The Artful Life of Jerry Ross Barish. This is a film that's showing as part of the San Francisco Jewish Film Festival, which starts tomorrow evening and runs for 18 days in four different venues, Castro in San Francisco, a theater in Palo Alto, a theater in Oakland, and a theater in San Rafael. Uh, but Plastic Man tells the story of uh, Jerry Barish, who is... Uh, you know, in some ways, I don't know how to describe him succinctly, except to say that he is an odd character who's had many different amazing creative things happen to him in his life. Um, I don't know if that captures it at all. Uh, but this tells the story of someone who, uh, you know, originally was a political activist as, of all things, a, a bondsman, uh, who wound up taking care of people on the left when they got arrested during the 60s and and bailing them out. So that was where he started. And then from there, he um, he made a film and started becoming a filmmaker and eventually, through a series of twists and turns, became a more um, specific artist using refound objects. Um, so you made this film about him, which was produced by uh, Janice Plotkin. What was it? You've made many different kinds of films. So when you're thinking about the essence of what you were trying to describe or impart about who Jerry Barish was, where did you really start? Well, for me, uh, making a film, they're always, I'm making, uh, I'm a detective. I'm making a detective story. And, and what I'm really interested in is what's driving the, the subject of the movie what what is the what are the either his personal history or what's what's driving him emotionally to pursue a dream 
and um, and Jerry had a very very rich background uh, coming from uh, a family where his father was uh, well his father was uh, associated with the mob and uh, and uh, had an amazing uh, personality he uh, he was no he was a fighter his father was a fighter in the 30s and uh, got a national reputation and was friends with an amazing variety of people uh from uh president truman uh to uh um mickey cohen from the la gangster and and so this is this is jerry's backstory growing up in the shadow of someone who was very prominent and um so, uh, and so he saw this his father was very uh revered by a lot of people and uh, and I think it, it sparked in Jerry to want to emerge out, out of his, his father's light to, to see if he'd become prominent in his own way in some, in some way. And his uh, first attempt was in the bail bonds business and he was very successful, but this did not satisfy this inner need that he had. And the film is a journey of watching him go through these different aspects of his life and continue to reach for some part of himself uh, that he felt needed to be explored in relation to his worthiness. So uh, through the course, uh, uh, Jerry Barish isn't somebody who speaks a lot, you know, like that. So um, you're making a film about somebody who is... uh, more sort of internal and reserved, and yet you're actually trying to capture their life. So uh, that's kind of a dilemma for a filmmaker. It was an amazing challenge. M- many of the uh, interviews with him were about as comfortable as a root canal. <laughs> he, he, yeah. uh, he's a very private person, and um, I remember when I, I was brought on to direct this film, he said, well, I, I don't want anything about my life in this movie. And I said, well, that's fine, Jerry. We're going to make a terrific 10-minute movie about your work. And I was only half joking because I'm really, really interested in um, what are the elements first? What are your per- what's your personal history that drove you in this direction? And, sa- and, and I mean, Jerry's a guy that's always been reaching for the brass ring. And I, I, I really want to know why. Because on a basic level, he's trying to meet needs that we all have. And, in a, and I also feel that when someone dedicates themselves to um, this journey, I feel it's like heroic. Um, and a lot of Jerry's work and his uh, ambition is out of uh, wanting to succeed. And I, you know, it's it's a subtext in the movie, but I, I believe that uh, his father's prominence played into his actively trying to become more visible. I see. So he says, you know, he lives in Pacifica um, on the beach, which is where he finds all of the things. And he's a San Francisco-based bales bondsman in the past. And so all this history that you're looking at is actually the sort of a history of San Francisco as well. Yes, he's he, uh, he you know, he, he found himself as a bail bondsman in the midst of, uh, uh, of a time when we were really in cultural revolution from from the free speech movement and uh he was in an industry that was very conservative so he was the only one who was willing to step up and uh and and support these people who were protesting the status quo so it um it had two effects one it changed the course of these uh 
movements. Uh, in, uh, for instance, the um, um, with with the free, with with the um, there was there was a there was a whole thing called Mel's Drive-In where there was a uh, it was a segregation problem. It was a race problem that that uh, they were segregated and they were discriminated against people of color. Um, and Jerry bailed all these people out. He bailed out 700 people uh, with no collateral. And <laughs> that was very brave of him. And those people went right back on the picket line and they won that fight. There was a level of integration in San Francisco that hadn't happened before. And he was basically the, the catalyst to, to uh, when they went back, they went back and um, the Cadillac Row and Mel's Drive and they, they, they uh, caved in. And so there was another level of integration. So he had a very effective uh, role in, in doing this. And, and, and he, I think in his point of view, he would feel some of this was circumstance. But like a lot of people, he stood up. You know, I feel like in a way that was like his moment in the sun. He stood up when no one else would stand up. And it changed things. Well, it is interesting. There's so many people that are public, public uh, political activists. And, you know, uh, I guess we hear speeches from them all the time. But there's a lot of people who do private political activism that nobody really ever finds out about. Uh, that maybe do it in a... Uh, like, who would think that there would be something about bail bonds people that would even enter the political arena? So it's fascinating that way. And, you know, it endeared him with all of the progressive lawyers in the Bay Area because he stepped up for their clients. So it, it had payoffs in the future. But when he was doing it, um, he was at great risk. We're speaking with the director of Plastic Man, The Artful Life of Jerry Ross Barish, uh, William Farley. And uh, the film uh, has three screenings at the San Francisco Jewish Film Festival. The first is this coming Saturday, uh, July 25th at 4.30 at the Castro Theater. It's playing Tuesday the 28th at 6.30 at Cine Arts in Palo Alto Square. And then it's playing Sunday, August 2nd at 4.10 at the California Theater on Kittredge Street in Berkeley. So if you want more information on the film, you can go to the website for the Jewish Film Festival, SFJFF, San Francisco Jewish Film Festival, dot org, 18 days and four venues. One other film that I just want to briefly mentioned that I think is really uh, entertaining in a completely different way is entitled Very Semi-Serious, also by a barrier filmmaker, Leah Walchok. Um, she doesn't live here right now, but it's a film about the New Yorker cartoons, um, edited also by local people, and it's um, a hoot, very funny and very creative. So um, if you're interested in a different way of thinking about uh, Jewish Film Festival. These are two films that I would recommend. Now, one of my favorite films of all time is showing in the theaters right now. Uh, it's a it's such a magnificent film on many levels, um, and it's The Third Man, which is uh, directed by Carol Reed. It was a film, um, a 1949 British film noir uh, that took place in Austria. And it tells a very interesting story. Austria is divided up into four sections. It's right after the war. So uh, people have to be very careful going from section to section. And we have this character uh, who, of all things, is a cowboy uh, novelist from the United States who goes over there to make 
contact with his closest friend. This character is played by Joseph Cotton, and he goes there to find his closest friend who, it turns out, he finds out, has been run over by a lorry, uh, by a um, truck as soon as he gets there. And he winds up meeting all these different characters in his best friend's life. And over the course of the story, we wind up finding out so much more about what's happening, about the dynamics between these people. And interestingly, the person who plays his friend who got run over, uh, the character is named Harry Lyme, played by Orson Welles, is only in the film for 20% of the film. And yet, he, his presence, or the shadow of him, is available the whole time so it, it's something that feels quite extraordinary on a, on a number of levels it's a film that when it first came out uh it was a big hit this the music which was played by zither uh became an international hit the film was well recognized in europe it wasn't that popular here in comparison uh, but then it's been sort of released over time in different ways and this is the new version uh so I think it's an extraordinary film. Uh, there's a lot to say about it. What do you? What are your thoughts about the Third Man? What do you, What stands out for you? Well, uh, one of the things is that um, you really don't know what's going on. So there's a sparseness to it. I mean, certainly the narrative keeps unfolding, but there's an there's an unease about it, and the way they shot it visually supports a kind of an anxiousness and unease. Um, it's ex- I think it's extremely uh, classically. Uh, constructed, and uh, it's it with when you see Orson Welles, you see somebody who uh, is this character who's very charming, also very evil, and so to have him in the in the film so little as a speaking character, you see his shadow, it just it compounds the drama. I, it's a masterpiece. It's Carol Reed's probably his best film, and and this new struck print, new thirty five millimeter print is. It's just magnificent. Yes, and it's interesting because the way that the film is shot is that there are different times when there's angles. Like, so that it's not like, uh, you know, if you watch a film nowadays, now we have a lot of dolly shots. We have, we actually have a lot of uh, shots from up in the air that are done by drones <laughs> that used to be done by uh, helicopters or airplanes. Uh, but there's a, and there's a scooping in. This is something that feels very intimate where all of a sudden you're looking at a scene and things are askew. Um, there are characters who are saying things like there's like one character talks about, well, where is Harry Lime now that he's dead? And he says, well, he's either uh, up in heaven as he points down or he's down in hell and he points up so that there's a way that everything is kind of being um, played with in a way that I think many films wind up copying out over time. But at that time, it was very unusual and extraordinary. And people were not necessarily paying as much attention to how things, the cinematography. And that one song is the only thing that we hear over and over again um, through the course of the film. So it changes its meaning just as in the same way that... Uh, Harry Lime changes meaning. From the beginning, it's sort of like a nice, playful song. And by the end, the tune has a very menacing quality. So it's very interesting. And the city is a character. 
the city that it's filmed in, and, and there's an economy about it that seems perfectly balanced. It's one of those films that's just perfectly balanced uh, between the screen time of all the images and the narrative that's unfolding. Yeah, it's it's extraordinary. Yes, because it's all segmented. Uh, it's interesting that Harry Lyme had this girlfriend, um, and it, her, she's there's something mysterious about her. She's played by Alita Vallee, and uh, Joseph Cotton also falls in love with her. And there's this question of who is she loyal to, and which of the four sectors does she belong to? Um, and, of course, there has to be the British um, all-knowing moment and there's these key moments that are so entertaining like the this guy joseph cotton who basically is sort of selected by the equivalent of the cia of britain to do a reading of his book you know so here's this intellectual group hearing a cowboy show (laughs) you know and it's clear that this guy is somebody who's just writing about a cowboy story in the fields, like it's making fun of American culture in a way, and they're trying to raise it to an intellectual discourse. Uh, so on many different levels, uh, it's wild. It was written by Graham Greene, who did the screenplay first, and then afterwards wrote the book. So that's also quite unusual, so that he was really interested in something that was created and then tracked and then made it bigger than life. So um, The Third Man, if you haven't seen it, or if you haven't seen it in a few years, uh, in this gorgeous new 35mm print, uh, it's not you know, it's not often that you get to see it in full-fledged hugeness. And I um, I highly recommend that film. It's... Um, it's uh, it's startling and it's wild and um, uh, uh, and the, uh, the other thing is the shadows. Like it's a black and white film, so there's so much about shadows and light and the the characters might be small, but then the shadows are big. So all these elements that are later used in horror films about making exquisite detail of things to get you engaged and frightened are all at play in this film. So The other part that seems to be striking is that uh, you're very attracted to the Orson Welles character. You know, you even though he is evil, there's something about it that, and, and you know, the, the there's this story that 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 as a director you really have to fall in love with all your characters, the hero and the villain, and I think they successfully did that in the third man. Yes, they did do that, and uh, I won't give away the ending, but I think it it also brings up this whole it brings the cowboy western mentality there. It, it talks about it's a critique of. World War Two and the divisions of countries afterwards. I mean, it's uh, it's astounding about what it's covering. So um, I think it's 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 incredibly strong and fascinating. So I I highly recommend that film. Uh, you know, do, what about you? Do you think seeing films in the theater is still worth it? It's gigantic. It's a gigantic positive because the when you're in the theater, even these small theaters, you're using the periphery of your vision, which means that you're engaged uh, physically and emotionally in a way that you can't when you reduce these to the side of a screen. Well, I mean, you know, we're being challenged now because they're getting screens at home that are pretty large. The, so, but the having your full periphery of your vision filled with an image is a very powerful uh a dimension and the other is being around other people uh who are absorbing the story at the same time there there's something uh, you know i i've always felt that i've 
in some very primary way. I've come out of the tradition of telling f- stories like around a fire, which has been happening since the beginning of time, before we invented time. There was something innate about telling stories around fire. And I think with film, we've just brought that light up to the hor- hor- the vertical. And uh, and uh, that I, I'm I'm sad that we may lose that that the idea of going to a th- movie theater and viewing a film with other people uh, the the uh, the attendance is diminishing terribly, but it's really something lost um, that I think uh, is sad. You know, it's interesting. I went to a film last night and there was somebody texting during the film, which I. Uh, it was so irritating, but I think it's irritating not just because it's the texting and the light bothers me, but also there's a way where it's like somebody's been pulled out of the film and I, I want to be part of a group. Um, and of course she was incredibly irritated, like who was I to tell her to stop texting? But, um, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's, it is interesting. Um, the bad habits of, of film goers. <laughs> well, you're, you're entering another world. You are actually entering a world. I mean, unless depending on the genre, but you know, we are in a kind of a dream. And and who has the right to pull you out of that experience? You you paid for your ticket. You have a right to immerse yourself into that experience. And I think it's very offensive of anyone who's so unconscious and has no manners to actually have their phone on during a screening. Yes, we're speaking to the director of Plastic Man, The Artful Life of Jerry Ross Barish, about general things now. So William Farley is my guest. And, you know, there's a a new film, Tangerine. Um, It's an independent kind of comedy drama, which is interesting. It was written by Sean Baker. Uh, He did, uh, what is it called, Star... Now I just blocked out the second part of that word, uh, about Starlet, about... um, a young woman in Hollywood who looks incredibly beautiful uh, has this kind of empty life and goes to a garage sale and winds up picking up something that is filled with money that she belongs to this older woman. And then she becomes interested in getting to know this older woman. Well, the starlet um, turns out that she works uh, as a porn star in films. So there's something about the relationship that is very interesting. So his new film, Tangerine, uh, is filmed on the streets of West Hollywood, and it tells the story of um, uh, two transsexuals, uh, one who just got out of prison, trying to look for their boyfriend, quote, fiancé, quote, um, pimp. And uh, so it's a very sad and intense film, uh, but it's there's something very interesting and gritty and real about it. And the thing that I'm interested in thinking about with you as uh, somebody who uses the camera and as a director is that the film was shot on an iPhone. Uh, he came up with a whole kind of um, structure to make it work and was able to um, actually get equipment for free for making the film using this equipment. And uh, he said that in the interview I read that Part of the reason was that way he didn't need to get permits. And then also he was working in a world where um, there's a lot of, you know, paranoia and weirdness and police and action and activity. Um, but there's also something about what are we willing to watch? And you were an experimental filmmaker, uh, maybe still see yourself that way. So what about this as an experiment and uh, the attention that it's getting? Um 
you know, the, it's the when we're talking about the format, it's it's the delivery system, and ultimately, what trumps that is the content. And I think with this film, which I have not seen yet, but I've seen the previews. I mean, there's a grittiness about it, and I think there's when you're shooting with a phone, you're invisible. I, I even I have. A, I shot the plastic man with a very small camera, and um, you really you really can get away with not having permits. So there's a visceralness that you can capture on the street uh, by being spontaneous, and no one can slow you down. And, and a lot of times people don't know what you're doing. So I think that they have uh, what I've seen from the previews is they've uh, they've used this this this. Uh, uh, dimension of uh, having invisible equipment to have a visceralness that um, you know is compelling so I, I think it kind of moves into the um, uh, makes you feel in a super realism in a way you know you're right there and you're not you know you're not protected by uh, kind of traditional uh, film language the setups the cuts then it's a little it's a little different than and I think it delivers a rawness that uh, that audiences are feeling is appealing. Well, you know, it, um, you're you're listening to cover to cover, frame to frame. My name is Raina Cowan. You know that we're used to watching things in different ways, and you know, we just talked about the glamorousness of watching something on the big screen. Well, uh, you know, there's people who watch. Uh, sometimes I teach and I'll say, you know, you have to watch this film and they'll they watch it on their phone and I go, oh my god, uh, or on a iPad that people do often or they're watching YouTube videos where the quality isn't so good. Do you think that there's a way that these elements have become such that that uh, we don't distinguish as much or we have a wider palette or? Well, I mean, I think presently there are uh, there are cultural themes that uh, are very seductive, and it's a it's a you know we're in a time where uh, I think we're always in a time we don't notice it necessarily, but it seems like the underground has become above ground. So we have we, we have a lot of films out there that are that are uh, investigating a world that was extremely private at one time, and uh, Tangerine is an example of that. So there's something. Um, attractive in, in our voyeur part of ourselves um and and i and i think that's what's at play here um i was just thinking as you were saying that you know when we're in a movie theater as a filmmaker we're in the we're in a in involved in a seduction and um with Plastic Man, I, we were at the 11th hour, right, right allowed to go out and get a print, uh, electronic print of the film. And I was concerned about the opening. And at the last minute, I put a title in, like, I mean, literally a half an hour before we were sending the film off. And, uh, the, the title that I came up in, you know, you know Divine Intervention, was, uh, um, Darwin said that man shed his tail eons ago. I disagree. Man cannot live without a tail. T-A-L-E. Uh. And what I was trying to do was to give the audience a permission to see the humor, even though this is a serious film, but to, to be relaxed. And at the Mendocino Film Festival, it's the first time, the first time I saw an audience laugh at that opening credit, opening title. Uh, and... Um, because we're always trying to separate you from the world you just left, walking to the movie theater, whatever your day was like, whatever your life is like, to bring you into another world. And um, uh, so that's an obligation. So the idea of this being 
this this film Tangerine being made on a phone, right away, you know, you're uh, you're you're being asked to let go of your qual the qualities that you feel make good storytelling and enter another world that you would not have access to. So. Oh, well, that, you know, that says it in a really interesting way. It links with this idea of voyeurness because the film Amy, which is a documentary about Amy Winehouse by Asif Kapadia, the first half feels amazing because we're learning something that we didn't know about her life. And the second half, when she's a star and we're watching things, we're voyeurs, too. We're sort of contributing to her downfall. So there's a way that becomes painful in a whole new way. So very interesting talking with you. So the director, William Farley of Plastic Man, The Artful Life of Jerry Ross Barish. It's playing at the Castro this uh, Saturday evening at 4.30, Tuesday at in Palo Alto at 6.30, and the California Theater on Sunday, August 2nd, all part of the San Francisco Jewish Film Festival. You can go to their website, sfjff.org, for more information about this and other films playing at the festival, which lasts for 18 days. My name is Raina Cowan, and you've been listening to Frame to Frame. I'll be back next month, and we're going to talk about sound, sound in film, sound in theater. So I hope you join me for a really interesting interview, and I will see you again. Thanks for listening, and thanks, William, for being here. My pleasure. Hey, just in case you haven't noticed, I'd like to point out that you haven't heard us asking for your support this summer. We promised you that we would try to eliminate a pledge drive this year. And now we're delivering on that promise. No summer fun drive. We know how fatigued you are with being asked to donate so often. We also realize we're taking a chance, like walking a high wire without a net, to deliver on the bargain we've made. But you've done your part. You've been patient with us and very generous. And we owe you this fun drive free summer. We couldn't have done it without you. So enjoy the summer and don't worry your head about how we're doing financially. We'll be back in the fall with another fun drive full of new thank you gifts and information you can only get at 94.1 FM. Oh, for you listeners who are able to support us right now, you can donate online at kpfa.org. Thank you. Then we go be all right. Do you hear me?